going to sing every Sunday morning here. Looking forward to that. They said it's no problem. They can be ready on a moment's notice. No, very good job. Thankful for that. Looking forward to many good more specials from them and other new groups here in the near future. Looking forward to that. Um, we are going to be starting choir back uh, Easter Sunday. It'll be our first Sunday with the choir again. Uh, but I'm going to lead that. That's what I did in Indiana for a long time, and it's a desire of mine to continue to do that and to uh, take the music ministry of the church forward here, and so we'll be starting that next Sunday. We're going to start for now at uh, 5.30, and then we'll, we'll adjust that as we get going, but uh, next Sunday night at 5.30, looking forward to getting choir practice going again. We're going to be in the book of Haggai together this morning. If you would, please get your Bibles out and turn to Haggai chapter 1. Those of you that come regularly uh, know we're in the book of Luke, and uh, yesterday I finished up the message in the book of Luke, and I I looked over it yesterday afternoon, it it was ready to go, and then around two in the morning, uh, this verse came to my mind in the middle of the night, and I went back to sleep, and then around four in the morning it came back, and so I got up and uh, started speaking to the Lord about it, and I know for sure this is what he has for us this morning. And uh, Haggai chapter 1, this is a message I've been planning on preaching at some point here. It wasn't going to be on a Sunday morning, uh, but it is going to be today, and I'm excited how the Lord's going to use it. If it's just for me, I'm thankful for it, but I hope it's a help to you as well. Haggai 1, so let's stand together. Haggai chapter 1. We notice as we look here, there's a time indicator, and those first few lines there in that verse... And it's uh, really the first of several time indicators in this book. But Haggai delivered this, it says, on the first day of the sixth month of King Darius' second year as king. And that would have been August 29th, 520 B.C. And uh, so that is, I believe, 2,542 years ago, this message was first delivered. And we're delivering it again today. And it's just, I hope it's just as helpful today as it was Uh, 2,500 years ago. Let's start reading here, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages, to put it into a bag with holes." Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts. Because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Today, for a few moments, we're going to look at the thought given to them here in chapter 1. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for the day you've given us. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is, God, to be here together this morning and worship you and hear from your word. Lord, I don't know why you wanted this preach today, but God, I know without a shadow of a doubt, it is what you have for us today. And God, I pray that, Lord, it would be help to anyone that's here. Lord, it would be a help to the ones you intended to be a help for. Lord, I pray that you would just use me as your vessel. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. About 900 years before we find Haggai giving this message from God, Israel entered the promised land. And as they entered, God told them, he says, you can live here as long as you worship, obey, and live for me. And he said, but if you turn from me, I'll send you into captivity. And that's what happened. The people turned from God, and we see this roller coaster in the life of the children of Israel and the history of the children of Israel. And they turned from God, and God judged them, and he sent them into exile in three particular ways at this point. The final occurring in 586 B.C., at which time the temple was destroyed there in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And the moment they destroyed that temple, there was just rubble everywhere in the city, and it was... Uh, the city was no good for anything anymore at that point. No, no, none of the Jews lived there. They were all there in captivity. And for 70 years, it stayed that way. And 70 years after they were taken in 586 B.C., God began to restore them to the promised land. And just as they were taken in three waves of exile, they were delivered in three waves of deportation. The first one of those happened in 538 B.C., you look in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and find the pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed that first wave of Jews, about 42,000 of them, to go and begin rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem. And not only did he make a decree, not only did he allow them to go and build this temple, but he funded the project. It's pretty wonderful to look and read how God not only allowed them to leave and to go back, but how he blessed them and, and provided everything they needed to do that. So 42,000 people left captivity and headed home. And the first order of business for them was to begin the rebuilding of the temple. Look at Ezra chapter 3 quickly here. Hold your place in Haggai, but Ezra chapter 3. And as we look there in Ezra 3, they got right to the task and they, they began there in the first year. In the seventh month, they rebuilt an altar and they started offering sacrifices. And we look in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, it says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priest and their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. They laid the foundation of the temple. Look at verse 11. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. Why? Because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
So we find them there delivered in that first wave of exile, 42,000 of them there in Jerusalem. And the foundation was quickly laid. They even had a celebration service, and they gave thanks to God. They worshiped him. And and we look here in Ezra Ezra chapter 3, the work started very well. The foundation was laid. But we look here in the book of Haggai chapter 1, and we see Haggai delivering this message. The Jews have been back in Jerusalem at this point 18 years. But the temple was not any further along 18 years later than it was in what we read in Ezra chapter 3. The foundation was there, nothing added on top of it, nothing changed in 18 years. And and we look here in Haggai chapter 1 and the people were comfortable and they had plenty of excuses as to why this wasn't done. And we understand this is not what God intended. And and God is reaching out to them through the prophet Haggai and he's going to be reaching out to them again through the prophet Zechariah. Just a few months later we have our theme verse for the year. But four times in this book... Haggai mentions this phrase, consider your ways. Consider your ways. That was a Hebrew figure of speech that was very common in those days. And our definition for it today, our meaning for it today would be, put your heart on your road. He was asking God's people to consider what direction their life was headed and if they really wanted to continue heading that way. I want to tell you this morning, my wife is a good driver. She's very good at directions, and she loves when I I have stories about her, because they're usually negative in some form or fashion, but she is a very good driver. But we were on a trip about five, six years ago, and uh, we were there in Oklahoma City preaching at Heartland, and we were traveling back to Indiana. I believe we had a a men's conference that on a Friday night we needed to get back to, and I preached chapel on a Thursday, and so we'd left as soon as I preached chapel and started heading back from Oklahoma City uh, to Indianapolis. And about eight hours in, we would reach St. Louis, and we get there to St. Louis, and, and I was tired. And um, if you ask her, I, I drive 99.9% of the time. I, I, I'm not a control freak. I don't have to be in control. I just need to be in control all the time. That's how our relationship is. But this one particular time, we were there in St. Louis. I was tired, and I asked, I asked her if she would just finish the trip. We just need to hop on I-70. Three and a half hours later, we're there in Indianapolis. And so we did that, and I, I fell asleep quickly. And I woke up a little bit later, and I saw signs for Peoria, Illinois. And, and we'd made this trip off, and we, have, you know, go, we crossed through Illinois to go from St. Louis to Indiana. And, but... To get from St. Louis to Indiana, we normally hadn't crossed through Peoria, and I'm kind of, you know, waking up a little bit and trying to get, get my understanding of where we are, and I see signs not for I-70, but for I-55. We were about two hours off course headed north instead of headed due east on 70. You know, if you were to ask both of us, we were pretty disappointed to find that out. We both wanted to be home. We both fully intended to to be home at a decent hour and to get rest. And the next day we had a lot of work to do, a lot of things to to cover. and, And we just wanted to get home at a decent hour. But the road that we were on took us somewhere else. You know, God's message given to the children of Israel here from Haggai was to look at the road you are on and where it is headed. And where do you think it's going to end up if you continue on it? And as we begin this morning and as we evaluate every aspect of our Christian life, as we begin this this message, where is your road headed? Pertaining to God, 
in your relationship with him and the influence you want to have on your family and, and generations to come, the impact you want to have in this city, the, the, the part you want to have in Southwest Baptist Church. If we continue on the road that you are on right now, where does it end? Where is it headed? There was a message here to these people to consider their ways and Here's a few things for them to consider. First of all, consider your priorities. Consider your priorities. If we look there in verse 2, it says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You know, God quickly, he didn't waste any time. He quickly addressed the priorities of the Israelites. And just a few moments ago, we referenced the beginning of their return to Israel. They had begun the, the work of the temple. The foundation was quickly laid. In two years, it took them to get to that point. But after two years, work had stopped. There are many different reasons for that. They were overcome by discouragement. They were taken off course by a lack of focus. And as Haggai is prophesying to them, the foundation of the temple was laid. It was laid the altar was rebuilt. But the temple was not even begun to be rebuilt. And, and there's a message here from God. He says, you say the time has not come. The time that my house, the Lord's house, should be built. You say it's not time yet. What, what do they mean by that? We need to remember this morning, these are God's people, the citizens of Jerusalem. They told themselves, they were telling themselves that it wasn't yet the right time to move along in the progress of the temple. You know, there were some good reasons why they might say that. If we were to look at Jerusalem at that day and age, the land was in great neglect. There was piles of rubble everywhere. We talked about that as we addressed the, the, the message from Zechariah that God gave him. There was piles of rubble. There was a mess everywhere. The wall was torn down. They were worried about their safety. The enemy was there. We can read this passage and see that the crops had deplenished significantly, barely enough to feed their families. They, they were putting their money into a bag basically with holes where they didn't really understand where their money was even going. The enemy was harassing them. The work was hard. And, and then they look at just what's ahead of them there in Jerusalem. There was a, it, it wasn't a very, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a very uh, good looking area to live in at the time. It was a mess. They really couldn't see the potential because there was just mess everywhere to a point where it seemed like the trouble wasn't worth it. But they made the excuse sound spiritual. You know, obviously these people are not going to speak against building the temple. That's what God wanted them to do. They weren't going to speak against the building of the temple. They were saying, we know we need to do it at some point, but it's just not God's time for us to build the temple. If it's so hard right now and if it's so difficult for us, for us right now, then evidently God doesn't want us to do it, at least at no time soon. And we need to remember this morning that these people were not bad people. There were hundreds of thousands of Israelites there in, in, in captivity in Babylon and only 42,000, these good 42,000 people had come back. It was a great group of people, people that truly desired to, to live for God. They were committed to the Lord. They wanted the temple to be restored. But their excuse was it's just not yet time to do that. But as we read what is going on in their life, we see a couple things here. The people did not have time to do what God wanted, but they did have time to do what they wanted. 
And he challenged them there in verse 4. He says, you don't have time to build the temple in verse 2. But then in verse 4 it says, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house, the temple, lie waste? It had to hurt a little bit, didn't it? We see priorities in their life not being the rebuilding of the temple, but their own life, their comfort. He says, you know, it's not the right time to rebuild my house. What makes it the right time for you to live in comfort? He refers to these as paneled homes, this indicated luxury in those days. And if we were to look in 1 Kings 7, we would see Solomon had paneled walls, paneled rooms in his house. It showed, it was luxury, it, it showed wealth. Some high quality wood was used to do that. And I can't help but wonder if they were using the wood that was intended for the temple to, to build up their homes instead of God's house. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with fixing up your house. Whatever God has given us, we, need to, we can do our, our best with it, take care of what we have. It's okay to have nice things. We're, we're looking to buy a house here hopefully very soon. We're, and we're open to things we need to fix up a little bit or walls that may, may need to be torn down. And we're both pretty handy people. We've done a lot of, of projects like that. And it's okay to fix up a house. It's okay to have nice things. It's okay to, to make sure you take care of what you have. But if we put our self-interest our will, our time, our money, our energy into our agenda and neglect God's agenda, that's a problem. But it's easy for us to see how something like this would happen over a period of 16 years. Yeah, at first, they, they stopped the work. It was very temporary. They retired from all the rubble. They, they'd worked for two years to build this foundation. They'd moved a lot of things out of the way. The, the enemy's there and harassing them. And if we were to look in Zechariah, I'm excited about preaching that, that story one day. Not Zechariah, excuse me, uh, Nehemiah. Sam Ballard and Tobiah there, they were saying if a fox ran up the wall, it would fall over. What do you think you're doing? They had that harassment coming over and over again from the enemies. And they had all these problems, so they just stopped for just a few days. Let things calm down. Let us get our, our strength built back up. Those days turned into weeks. Those weeks turned into months. And months turned into years to a point where a whole group of adults had been born at this point with no work being done on the temple. You know, we can't get much done at the temple, so I'm, I'm, I'm just tired of living in this wreck, so let's do, do work at home. There's no opposition there. It's easy to see how it started. But making their comfort a priority eventually caused them to come to a state of carelessness when it comes to the rebuilding of the temple. He says, you build up your houses while this house lie in ruins. That was the real problem. Not that God's people were living somewhere nice but that they lived in such personal comfort and luxury while the temple was not being addressed. To a point to where the only way it was described as being ruins. Keep, it, keep in mind this morning, the temple represents the place where God dwells amongst his people. When the temple was built, it was a sign of the strength of God. When the temple was there, it was the place where, where God dwelled, and they knew that, that they had his presence with them when they had his place established. And for 16 years, the priority of, of having God in the center of their city 
was not a high priority. This isn't the right time. Later will be better. You know, we have the altar. We can at least sacrifice in some way to God. We're, we're getting by in the area of worship. The problem was simply wrongly ordered priorities. They were content to let the cause of the Lord suffer at the expense of their comfort. One commentator said it this way, and I really can't describe it any better way. He called it misordered affection. You've got time to do this and this and this, but no time for me. They wanted it built, just not today. Because they wanted what they wanted. You know, our hearts are naturally inclined to do what they want to do, aren't they? And our flesh often wants things that have nothing to do with God. Our flesh wants to be comfortable. Our flesh enjoys rest. We enjoy time to ourselves. We like things. We can look, look in the word of God and we see David who was given a title by God, a man after mine own heart. David was, was called a man after God's own heart. And what did David say about his heart in the 119th Psalm? He said, incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. David understood even being the man after God's own heart that his heart had, a, a, had an inclination at times to pursue what he wanted and not what God wanted. You know, the Israelites had great intentions. They had reasons not to be doing what they were doing, but they never had action when it came to the things of God. And we may be here this morning and be faithful members of this church and, and been Christians our whole life, raised our children in church, and we have a desire to, for God to do something here. And we say we value the things of God, and we say we value having a life for Him, but what do our actions say about what we say we value? Where is our value? It's not a bad thing to enjoy life. It's not a bad thing to, to, to be with our families and to have nice things and to, to, and, to, and to enjoy the life that God has given us to live. But when our priority is self above God, that is trouble. You know, we say we love God and we say we want to grow in him, but if we choose self over him, that says something else. We understand we have a need for his word and we may choose not to read the Bible but to watch the news in the morning. Choose to send that text, make that phone call, read that article and not pray. Choose all of the extracurriculars and, we, and choose not to spiritually invest in our families, in our homes. We've got time for so many things often. But many times not enough time for God. And he told them here, consider your ways, consider your priorities. And second thing he said, consider your difficulties. Look there in verse 6, he says, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. He clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Verse 9, he says, you looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Verse 11, I called for a drought upon the land, upon the mountains, upon the corn, upon the new wine, upon the oil. Things were not going as, as good as they hoped they would. 
With all the attention, all the effort, all the energy they were putting into themselves, it still wasn't enough. It wasn't bringing satisfaction. It wasn't doing enough for them. He says, you drink a lot, but you're not filled with drink. You have, you have clothes, you have plenty of clothes, but you're not warm. You bring your work home, and I, it seems like I'm just blowing everything away. They were busy going all over the place, doing so many different things, and all of that ended up being very ineffective. The people of Israel were being judged, and they didn't know it. And it seems they were just writing it off as, as tough economic times. Why were they in this predicament? We're told here God was chastising them. We're not going to go there for time's sake, but if we looked in Deuteronomy 11, we would find a promise from God hundreds of years before that if you turn from me or if you go away from me, then the chastisement will come. And they were already getting there for 16 years into that mold again. When God was neglected, nothing seemed to work right. They were able to accomplish some things. They had nice homes. But it wasn't bringing the satisfaction that it should have. I imagine the people of God at this point just, just being so tired and, and depressed and discouraged because of all the work they were putting and all the things and they still just didn't have that fulfillment. They were discouraged because of the drought after all the time planting, all the time taking care of the crops and still we were barely making it. And they may have written this off as bad luck or attack from the devil. But who brought the drought? God did. And as we look at what's going on in this life and as we apply it to our life this morning, we understand when we neglect God, we will never have enough. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live and also most likely the richest man to ever live, wrote, I have seen all the works under the sun and all come to vanity. It's never enough. It's impossible to fail to give God his rightful place in our life without there being consequences from that. And maybe there's someone here this morning and, and you're, you're doing all these things and you, and, you, and you love your family, you're taking care of business, you're, you're doing what you need to do, you're sitting at church this morning, and, but you're going through life right now without the peace of God in your life. Maybe, maybe there's a temptation in your life that you just can't seem to, to get by. Or maybe there's just a lack of joy. Maybe there's a trial in your life you've been experiencing. You don't know why. And you, you look at all these things. You have all this effort going anywhere. But a lack of fulfillment. A lack of peace. A lack of God's joy. It's because the road we're on is not headed where it should be. Maybe you're sitting here for years of your life. Remembering past victories and past blessings of God, but you're left with the same foundation of a temple and no progress being made. When we neglect God, we'll never have enough, but when we put God first, we'll have all we need. Consider your ways. Consider your priorities. Consider your difficulties. Last thing today, consider God's will. So they had this convicting message from God given to them. He said, this is happening and this is why. 
And as they hear that, no doubt there is a desire in their life to get back to where they needed to be. And maybe there's some of us here this morning that are applying this to our life a little bit. And you go, okay, if I'm not where God wants me to be, how do I get back? What is God's will for my life? How do, how do I fix these issues or how do I change my focus? The only way to cure misordered affection is to gain greater affection for someone else. Something else. And the Israelites here were told to go back to God. The first thing we need to do is, it's a big one, it's a hard one, it's deep. Verse 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Obey God. Do what he says. Stop what you're doing and get going for God. You know, we often make the Christian life much harder than it needs to be, don't we? We go to all, di- all different kinds of things. We try all kinds of different methods. When often all that is needed is just for us to be simply obedient to his commands. God has not asked us to perform monumental tasks alone. He simply wants us to obey and, and comply with his will. And he hasn't changed. I, I, love, I love what he told them there in verse 8. He says, go up to the mountain and bring wood. And build the house. He, he, he wanted them to get busy and start. He knew the temple wasn't going to be built right away. He understood it wasn't going to be perfect for, for some time. But what they needed to do was to stop being idle and stagnant in their life. And to go up to the mountain, get wood, and come back and begin to build. And trust him with the rest. There may be just some of us here this morning that need to go get some wood. <laughs> Need to go to the mountain, cut down a tree, and start building. Simple. You know, we understand the Bible tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Obedience to God's command. The Bible tells us to raise our children in, in what? The nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's simple. He tells us not to be drunk with wine, but to be what? Filled with the Spirit. It's a simple command. We understand we need to pray. We understand we need to read our Bible. We understand we need to simply tell others what God has done for us and be witnesses everywhere we go. Simple tasks. You may not know a big plan God has for you, but we know these things, don't we? But sadly, so often we make it much more difficult than it is. Obey God. Next one, fear God. There in verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedech, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, In the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. For 16 years, there wasn't much fear. God had led them back to Jerusalem. Everything's great. No need to fear. He's there. He brought them there. Things aren't like they want. They've done what they wanted with it. 
What was missing was a reverence and, and respect and awe of God. Do you think if the fear was truly where it needed to be, if they truly respected God as they did, do you think the temple would have been being built no matter what? That's what God expected. That's what God led them back to do. But they took him for granted, and there was a lack of reverence. You know, if, if we truly fear God as we should, and if we truly look to God as we should, all these other things will fall into place. If we truly have reverence for God as we should, worshiping him won't be too much of a task. Obeying him won't be too hard for us to do. Giving him what is due won't be too difficult of an option. Do what he expects. We look in the book of Revelation, we understand that we were created for the pleasure of God. That's why we're here. The people around this world today that are not worshiping God, they were created for the pleasure of God. The people today that would say they hate God were created for the pleasure of God. That's why we're here. We should live for the reason we were created. They feared God and they obeyed him. They, they just simply got back to doing what they knew they were supposed to be doing. And then one last thing happened. They were stirred of God. There in verse 13, Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord, and he still is. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit, not just of the leaders, but of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They obeyed him. They feared him. And he blessed them with his presence. As they gave reverence to God and as they obeyed him, he truly, he fired them up. He gave them a new passion for him. And the, and the people's hearts were, were turned toward God. He, he stirred up the, the, the heart of the leaders. He began to stir their hearts, giving them a fresh touch from, from heaven. And he stirred up the hearts of all the people. And he began to work in their lives again to accomplish what he intended them to accomplish. I want to tell you this morning, I've been in, the, I've been in his presence. I've, I've experienced his touch in my life. I've experienced his, his power working on my behalf, but I've also experienced many seasons, regretfully in my life, that I've grieved him and been without him. And there's no comparison. And more than anything else, We need a stirring of God. We need to get back to a place where we're living in dependence. Where we're no longer living for ourselves, for our own comfort, but for Him. And there may be people here today that are tired and weary. People here today that are dissatisfied with where your life is and where your relationship is with, with God, with others. And there's a good chance it's because we are not in his will. We're not obeying him. We're not fearing him.
We just need to go up to the mountain and get wood. If you look on the back of your bulletins this morning, you'll see a picture there. I've got a bigger copy of it here. But this is in the Berlin Art Gallery. It was painted by a German painter named Adolf Menzel in the early 1900s. This picture was intended to be a painting of Frederick the Great. And, and, and if we look here in the middle, you'll see an outline of Frederick. He was, he was never painted, but he started to paint many of his generals, many other soldiers that would have been there at that point. And, and as we look at this picture, there's a lot of detail already. There, there's, a lot, there's a lot of people develop. You look, at, you look at facial expressions, you see what they are wearing, you see all these things in the picture. He spent all the time on all these things. And he outlined Frederick the Great with charcoal, and then he died. Never able to finish. So we see 30 men, we see detail, they're all facing the center, but no king. He died in 1905 and was, wasn't able to finish the project. And sadly, that's what a lot of Christians do. We spend our lives on so many other things, coming to the end without ever putting our king in the center of our life. Not in his proper place. Spending time everywhere else but what's most important. Consider your ways. As we close this morning, put your heart on the road. Where is it headed? Every head bowed, every eye closed.